Well, I, I want to welcome all of you on this Mother's Day weekend. We're beginning a brand new series uh, today called Odyssey of an Emerging Leader. Now, I, I love biographical studies in the Bible. I think we learn so much from kind of taking a close-up look uh, in the lives of the w- women and men that God used so powerfully in his word. And sometimes we learn positive lessons from the great character traits they had. Others times it, it's learning what not to do and what pitfalls to avoid. But this series is kind of about leadership and it focuses on the life of Samuel. And today we're talking about the fact that every great leader didn't emerge in a vacuum. He or she stands on the shoulders of someone else, the people who've invested so powerfully and so meaningfully into their lives. So on this Mother's Day weekend, we want to put the spotlight on Samuel's mother. Her name was Hannah. Now, as you're going to see, she's not a perfect model for us because she was called upon to release her child at a much younger age than most of us ever will be. And yet, she is an inspirational example to moms. And I want us to look at her life, kind of pick her story up because we, we see a lot here about the person that, that Samuel was standing on her shoulders. So let's take a look at it. Before Samuel was actually born, Hannah and her husband Elkanah were childless. Now that was a stigma in those days, a a, a scourge. It's still a heartache today to millions of couples. But she so desperately wanted a child that she actually uh, made life a bit miserable for everybody around, including her husband. 1 Samuel 1, verse 8 reads, Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, dear honey bun, sweetie pie, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Now that was a dumb question. No matter how special he was to her, he was not meeting that need for a child that was deep within her heart. And so she continued to desperately plead with God to provide a child for her. Now we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. And then I want us to kind of launch into this. I invite you to take your note sheet out that's in your bulletin on the back and and just might want to jot some things down as we walk through some ways that Hannah, as a mom, was so blessed by God. And one of the, some of the ways that she made a huge mark uh, on her child's life. 1 Samuel 1 verse 10 reads, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you'll only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. By the way, that part about no razor 
was a part of the Nazarite vow. So that suggests that maybe she was thinking he would be a part of that special group of young men who committed themselves in very austere ways to follow the Lord. A part of that was they, they didn't cut their hair. A part of that was they didn't drink wine or strong drink. And there, were, there was a strict code that they followed. So apparently that's what she had in mind if God blessed her with this son. So the first thing we see here is that Hannah prayed for her son. Now, we don't know exactly how long it was in between these episodes. It might have been years later. We don't know. But I want you to look at this interesting interchange that Hannah had with the priest Eli. It begins in verse 13. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Now, They, by the way, a little parenthetical note here, she and her husband would make the annual trip uh, where the tabernacle was. It was a special time of worship and the offering of sacrifice to God. So that's where she is when this is happening. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get, Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Now I want you to notice a few things here about Hannah's prayer. First of all, it was simple. It wasn't a greedy prayer. She didn't ask for five children or 10 or to have the largest family in all of Israel. She simply asked for one child. Second, it was not only simple, it was a specific prayer as well. She didn't just pray for a child. In her case, she prayed for a son. And in that culture, she had in mind that he would be able to serve the Lord in a more formal way as one of the priests. Third, it was a sincere prayer. It came from the very depths of her heart. And I'm sure that there are many women here today who've had a difficult time coming to worship on Mother's Day weekend because they can relate to some of the grief and some of the longing that Hannah experienced as she went through this time of barrenness. And if you're a married couple and you're longing to have children, uh, I would obviously urge you to continue praying in that way. But many, many amazing couples at Grace at our various locations have had that yearning fulfilled through adoption. And I could point you to a number of wonderful families I I really respect, and they've adopted one or more children, some of them three, four children, and they're raising those children in the ways of God. Or you might also consider that since God has not blessed you at this point in that way with children, you know what, maybe he has some sort of special experience or niche or role for you in the body. Let me tell you what I mean by that. One of the people that you've heard me mention office who had an enormous impact in my life is Dr. Lewis Drummond. 
He was a professor in seminary. He opened the door for me with, with uh, future employment with the Billy Graham team. Just an amazing influence in my life. And he and his wife, Betty, although they had prayed, were never able to have children of their own. But in their case, what they asked God to do was to give them spiritual children. To give them, and again, they prayed specifically for young men who would go into the ministry and all of us who were under that influence that God gave to Dr. Drummond and his wife Betty were called Louis Boys. Louis Boys. When Dr. Drummond passed away and I went to his funeral service, I walked up and saw Betty, his wife, for the first time. And as she saw me walking up, she threw her arms and said, you're one of Louis boys. And he marked our lives in such positive and profound ways because he saw us as the spiritual children when he and his wife were unable to have children of their own. Now, what I'm saying here is that I believe a mom's prayer can have incredible impact. So what would really happen, folks? What would happen if moms and dads began to pray for their children, for their grandchildren, for the priorities in their lives, for their choices, for their future spouses? Debbie and I began to pray for Allie's and Chase's spouse. We began to pray for Allie's husband and for Chase's wife when they were about four years old. And we just fervently and regularly be prayed for them. God, we don't know where they are. They may be somewhere all the way on the other side of the planet. We don't know where they are. They may be right here in our own neighborhood, but would you prepare them as you prepare Allie, as you prepare Chase? Allie is getting married next month, and we rejoice because her fiance, Sean, is an answer to prayer. When Sean asked me out to breakfast, to ask for Allie's hand in marriage, and man, was he nervous. I am telling you, and he was gonna buy breakfast for me, and I knew what was coming. He was gonna ask me that big question if he could marry my daughter, and uh, he was gonna pay for breakfast, and I knew that he didn't have a lot of money, and I said, well, Sean, this is probably the only time you're ever gonna buy breakfast for me, but I'll let you do it today. And we had an awesome conversation. And I was able to say a resounding yes to him and look in his eyes and say, you know what? I've been praying for you for years. I just hadn't met you yet. What would happen if we began to pray for the future generations, for our sons and daughters? You see, sometimes prayer changes things, but usually prayer changes us. And I believe there are critical junctions in a mom's life, and a child's rearing, where it's about all a mom can do because her back is against the wall. When I reached the ripe old age of 12, I was at a critical junction in my own spiritual development. And my mom had taken me to church from the time I was uh, an infant. But at the age of 12, I'll never forget, I marched into the kitchen and declared to my mother that I was done with going to church. I said, I'm finished. I'm, I said, church is so boring. I don't want to go anymore. And I'm the youngest of seven children. I have three older brothers, three older sisters. None of my older brothers went to church. My father was not a churchgoer, not a believer. 
And I could see when I said that, I could see the pain in my mother's eyes. I could see that had dealt her quite a blow because, you see, she had believed that there was a good spiritual foundation that had been laid already. And I could see the, the hurt there, but she urged me to keep going. She, she said, no, I, I, really, I really want you to keep going. And about a year, just over a year after that, I yielded my life to Christ. And after I was saved, you couldn't have kept me away from church with the National Guard. I wanted to go. I wanted to learn how to follow Christ. I wanted to be all he wanted me to be. But what I'm saying is, I believe that humanly speaking, I'm a Christian today, I'm in ministry today because God honored, humanly speaking, my mother's prayers. Parents, your prayers are in a very real sense one of the most profound blessings you give to your kids. Please pray for them regularly and let them know you're praying for them. The second thing that Hannah did is she prepared her son at a very early age. You see, Hannah understood something, that the intensity of her prayer life had to be matched by her daily effort as a parent. And she also sets a good example for moms in that she was intentional about preparing Samuel. She understood how critical those early years were. Verse 24 reads, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, when we hear the word weaning, uh, we naturally connect that with nursing. And most of us would say, well, oh my goodness, he, he was so young, but He probably wasn't that young. Weaning can mean lots of different things and it can mark lots of transitions in childhood. So how old was he? Well, the commentators differ. Some think as old as 12, uh, but probably most believe he was probably old enough to do a few things for himself here, kind of take care of himself. He was probably six or seven years old and he was able to go and help Eli do some things around the tabernacle. And the early years of a child's life are critical. They lay a foundation for their future years. Hannah understood that. And I think there are two things that intensified her preparation. Number one, she understood that this child was a gift from Almighty God. By the way, every child is. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, the psalmist says, Children of reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. In fact, Samuel's very name means the Lord has heard my prayer. So she knew that this boy was a treasure given to her by God. And the most important thing she could do in these early years was pour her life into him. But the other thing Hannah realized Not only was he a gift, but her time with him was very, very limited. Hannah would soon have to take Samuel to the tabernacle and leave him there. She just didn't have a lot of time. And I say to you as parents, please hear me. You don't have a lot of time. Every psychologist I've ever read 
every show on TV, from Super Nanny to Dr. Phil to who knows, stresses the point that the first few years of a child's life are the most critical. Parents, please move heaven and earth to try to find a way to invest in that child early on. Most child experts believe that a child's basic morality, their whole view of life, their whole personality is set by the time they're about five years old. I would urge you, even if it takes enormous sacrifice to try to be there for your child in a significant way and invest in those years. Because what you plant, the seeds you plant in those early years are gonna produce an enormous harvest of righteousness. Fred Craddock is a preacher I greatly respect, a professor, a, a author of many books. He tells of a young woman who gave her testimony to him once. And I want to read her testimony to you. She said, Dr. Craddock, my freshman year of college, I was a failure in my classes. I wasn't having any dates, and furthermore, I didn't have any money. (laughs) I just was so lonely and depressed. Life was sad. And then she said to Dr. Craddock, one Sunday afternoon, I was so low, I went to a nearby river near the campus. I climbed up on the rail on the bridge and looked down into the dark water below, I felt so desperate. She said, for some reason, in that desperate moment, I thought of the line, cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. And I just couldn't shake it. Cast all your cares upon God. Cast them on the Lord because he cares for you. And I stepped away from the rail And I turned my life over to God. And Craddock was so intrigued by her story, he asked her, where did you learn that Bible verse? And she said, I don't know. And Craddock pressed and probed. He said, did you go to church growing up? She said, no. But then she thought for a moment, and she said, well, when I visited my grandmother in the summers, we went to Sunday school in church. And Craddock said, aha, I knew it. God's word does not return void. And that's why we're instructed in Deuteronomy that these commands God says that I'm giving you today are first of all to be upon your hearts, but then what are you to do? You're to impress them on your children. You're to talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So Hannah is a real model for us in that she prayed for her son even before he was born And she prepared him at a very early age. But I want you to see a third quality quickly that makes her, in many ways, a model mom. Hannah released her son to God at the appropriate time. Verse 25 in chapter 1 reads, They brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. Whoa. What a gut-wrenching decision. 
she's given up this six or seven year old boy, her only child. She loved him deeply. What a moment that must have been. Our daughter Allie is graduating also in uh, just about a week. And uh, many of you have been there, and you know how tearful those departures can be when you drop your children off at college. And colleges usually have a routine for this, you know. They have an orientation that goes on, and they keep the kids so busy and get them so tired they can't get homesick for a while. That's just the way it goes. But they usually say to the parents something like this, Okay, you can say all your goodbyes now. We've had some stuff for the parents. Say your goodbyes, but you need to be off campus by 5 p.m. You know why they do that? Because parents wouldn't leave. They wouldn't go unless they put a deadline on it. You gotta be off campus at 5 p.m. And so there's these tearful departures and one more hug before we go. And you, you drive away from that with a, with a lump in your throat. And Hannah left this seven-year-old boy, and she may not see him for a year. I'll tell you something else that must have made this tough. Eli wasn't exactly the best guardian in the world either. You know what? The scripture says he was too passive with his own sons, and largely because of his neglect, they grew up to be scoundrels. And now he's old. The Bible says he was very overweight. So think about it. She's turning her child over to this overindulgent, crusty old priest at the tabernacle. About seven years old he is. That had to be difficult. But she did it because she had promised God that she would. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 21 says, And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. In other words, God really opened her womb. She became fertile. God blessed her for this incredible sacrifice that she had made. Now, although few of us will be called upon to release a child as early as Hannah a wise, godly mother does begin to release her child at a very young age. We think of releasing. We think, well, oh yeah, I'll release them when they go to the military. I'll release them when they go to college, when they get married. But no, it begins much earlier than that, doesn't it? And wise moms really understand this. I mean, the releasing really begins from the moment they're, they're weaned from the mother's breast. And then moms, when you leave your child at the nursery here at church, when they're just an infant and they clutch onto you and cling to you and don't want you to go, you you go ahead and turn them over to those faithful workers. That's a time of releasing your child. And then when they're a bit older, maybe three or four, and you're about to put them in that, that toddler class or that kid celebration class, and they don't want you to go, you say, now look, I'm gonna be in the sanctuary and I can be here in two or three minutes. There's a big screen in there. And, and you, you know, if your number comes up on the screen, I can be here quickly, but don't let your number come up. Because that's a little bit inconvenient and even kind of embarrassing. Don't let your number come up. Or when you walk your six-year-old to the bus stop for the first day of school, and she's really nervous and she gets on the bus and you see her sit down and she presses her face against the window and waves goodbye. Oh. 
an hour later, don't go down to the school with chocolate chip cookies. You don't do that because you're, you're learning. You're learning to release your child. Or you let your child go to camp on Saturday. It's move-in day. It's a week-long camp. And on Tuesday evening, you get a call. Mom, I don't feel very good. The dean says, I must have homesickness. Could you come pick me up? Say, no, son, we'll, we'll be there on Saturday to pick you up if we don't have anything better to do. You, you, you practice that, and you're, you're releasing your child. Or when they're 14 or 15, Mom, I want to go on a mission trip to Guatemala with the youth group. You think, oh, no, plane ride, terrorists, snakes, earthquakes, tsunami, disease. How much is it going to cost? You think of all these things and you're scared, but you let them go because you understand there has to be a releasing process that goes on. And then when they're 16 and they learn to drive a car and they get a summer job and they have a date, you're releasing your child. And when all these things have gone on and you show up that college campus when they're 18 and you say those goodbyes at 5 p.m., yeah, you go away with a lump in your throat. Because it's still difficult, but you've been practicing releasing for years now. And in two or three days, or in my case, two or three hours, the lump will be gone, and you'll be saying, hallelujah, I'm kind of liking this empty nest thing. If we could just get the dog to die, life would really begin. (laughs) Wow, hallelujah, Jesus. Liking this empty nest thing. Because you've released your child. That's what it's all about. Hannah got that. And when your newly married son, after six months of marriage, calls you up and catalogs all the problems he's having in marriage, and you say, well, son, what are you going to do about all this? This is really, mom, I want to come home. You say, son, you are home. You are releasing your child. That is a wise mother. See, Hannah got it. She knew her son didn't exist for her. Samuel existed for God. And she existed to please and to serve God above everything else. And a wise mother knows that while it's really nice to be needed, that's not the goal. The goal is to raise a healthy child that's flourishing in every way and that is ultimately physically, emotionally, and spiritually independent of you. That's what a wise mom understands. There's a fourth principle here I think we can learn. Hannah found practical ways to express love to her son. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now, here's a picture of what we all want. Here's what I mean. We all want to pass the baton of faith to our children so that they follow the Lord on their own. It's not a Sunday school faith. It's not my parents' faith. No, they've embraced it. They're walking in the truth now because it's their faith. I like 3 John verse 4, which reads, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And every mom and dad who loves the Lord, they would say the same thing. 
That's what we want. We want our children to walk in the truth. But there's lots of ways we need to learn to express love to them. 1 Samuel 2 verse 18 reads, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Get that picture. She just is thinking about her son all year. She's probably continuing to pray for him. She makes him this garment, takes it to him every year, gives him some new clothes that she's made for him. And godly moms want to express love in practical ways any way they can, whether it's through making time for their children, holding a small child, taking care of his needs, playing on the floor with a toddler, getting down on the floor with them, down on their level, reading Bible stories before bedtime, teaching them to pray, kissing them goodnight, sitting through hours of baseball games and soccer games and football and basketball and dance recitals and vocal recitals, taking pictures of them, encouraging them, But the truth today, and one of the elephants in the room on this topic, is that you know as well as I that many children end up breaking their parents' hearts. It's just the truth. We gotta be real about that. And many of you today kind of have a lump in your heart every time Mother's Day, Father's Day rolls around because honestly, you don't even know if it's right to talk about it or where you should talk about it, but, but you've got a lump in your throat. You've got an ache in your heart because your children have, for all practical intents, rejected your values. You say, so, Pastor Rex, what are we supposed to do with that? Man, we raised them to serve God. We raised them in the church. They're living a lifestyle that's just so different than what we wanted for them. What should we do? Well, there's so many things we could say to that. That's a huge question. But I would urge you to learn the difference between acceptance and approval. Big difference between the two. Between acceptance and approval. Here's what I mean by that. Acceptance means you have a child who is just living contrary to your values and the way they're handling money and and the way they're handling sexuality and the way they're handling their vocation and what they're doing to make a living or not make a living and what they're doing with their time and the kind of philosophy they espouse, the kind of worldview they promote. You're going, oh my word, how, where did all this come from? You can still accept them as a person and truly love them unconditionally and let them know that. You can't do anything that would ever take my love away, but you also need to be clear that I don't approve of all the things you do. And there's a huge difference between those two. It seems that some parents are a bit confused about that. And so what will happen is this. When their child shows up and they're obviously living a lifestyle contrary to what the parent wants, then they just kind of blow up and go, this isn't what we raised you for. Uh, we We just can't accept you at all. And the child just gets this message of rejection completely. Like we can't even dialogue about this. We can't even sit down and have a cordial conversation here. And many parents I know tragically have burned bridges with their children. 
Don't burn bridges. I don't care what they're doing, love them. Don't burn bridges. Keep a bridge so that one day, like the prodigal who's in the pig pen and finally came to his senses. And by the way, interestingly enough, most young people do eventually make some sort of turn toward a more rational position. They've got a bridge they can come across and they can come back to God, they can come back to you and they can know there's a God who's waiting for them and they can receive the same love that Hannah gave to her son. There's one final thing I wanna mention in this message today and that this may be, this may be If you boiled it all down and had to just pick one, this may just be the most important. This may be the only one you need to even talk about right here. Hannah consistently lived out what she said she believed. I hear parents regularly say to me, Pastor, I just can't get my kids to listen to me. I talk and talk and talk. I think I'm making sense. I try to get their attention. They just don't listen to a word I say. You know what I wanna do? I wanna hug that parent. I want to go, listen, don't worry about that. Don't worry that they're not listening to a word you say. Worry that they're always watching you. If you want to worry about something, that's what you ought to worry about, that they never stop watching you. Because that's the most powerful message you'll ever send, not your words what they see you doing, what they see you really valuing in the home. At the beginning of our story today, we read that Hannah, can you believe it? She was making a bargain with God. She said, God, if you'll just give me a son, I'll give him back to you to serve you all of his life. And she kept that promise. You know what that communicated to Samuel? Commitment is important. Wow, my parents do what they say they're gonna do. They've got a genuine faith in God. Now, let's just clear the the ground, right? Let's just clear the air. There are no perfect families in this church. I haven't found one. I've, I've found a few people who are faking it, okay? You see anybody who seems to have a, you can know for sure they're dealing with the same challenges, the same struggles that you are. There are no perfect families allowed. Can we just agree to that? No perfect families allowed in this church. Hallelujah, I feel better already. No perfect families allowed. Eugene Peterson is a heroic figure to me. He's the guy who did the paraphrase called The Message. Great, great Bible teacher. Eugene Peterson writes, and I quote, a search of scripture turns up a surprising truth. There are no exemplary families. Did you know that? No exemplary families. Not a single family is portrayed in scripture in such a way as to evoke admiration in us. There's not even one family for us to look up to and to model. Adam and Eve are no sooner out of the garden than one son kills another. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are forced to devise a strategy to cover up their father's drunken shame. Jacob and Esau are bitter rivals. Joseph's father plays favorites, and his brothers redefine sibling rivalry. David is a man after God's own heart, but he he cannot manage his own family. Even Jesus' family criticized him and didn't appreciate him. 
The biblical material consistently portrays the family, not as this Norman Rockwell painting, but as a series of broken relationships in need of grace. Folks, that is so true. No perfect families allowed. So as a parent, I hope you'll just take a deep breath. You don't have to be a perfect parent to raise a child to love God, but you do need to do your best, by God's grace, to model a faith that is real and genuine. If I were you, I would just make worshiping God on the weekend a non-negotiable, if I were you. It wasn't our home, it wasn't negotiable, it wasn't up for grabs. My mother was worried when I was 12 years old and I declared I wasn't gonna go, she knew that my dad wouldn't back her up. And she was afraid I was gonna drift away just like all my brothers had. And she knew she had no power there ultimately and that's why it broke her heart. She said to me years later, I began praying for you in a focused way after that conversation when you were 12. And just over a year later, I yielded my life to Christ. I'm so glad. I'm so glad I stayed under the influence of the gospel and gospel preaching. I don't know where I would be today if I had not done that, if my mom hadn't brought me to church. Somebody put it like this, If you don't make a habit out of going to church each Sunday, you shoot yourself in the foot, your children in the leg, and your grandchildren in the heart. You know, we'd like to believe that if we just send our kids to a children's school, or Christian school, if we just let them go to kids' celebration, if we just had them memorize a few verses, if we just could send them to a Christian camp every now and then, if we could find a little bit of spiritual pixie dust and sprinkle it on them, surely they would turn out okay. My observation, my observation, that's all it is, is that the children that tend to really get it and stick for the long haul tend to be tend to be, it's not absolute, there's no guarantee, but they tend to be the children who grew up in a home where they really saw that Jesus Christ was a priority. This is a guilt-free zone. Parents, if you just receive some guilt, kick it out, get rid of it. Because children have a free will. Some of the best parents I know have children who've rebelled against God. Guilt-free zone. Get rid of the guilt. Not here to create more guilt. But let's not throw out the principle. In most cases, when children see that lived out, they're gonna go, I want that. So don't worry, parents, that your children don't seem to be listening. If you're gonna worry... Worry that they seem to be watching everything you do. You want them to pray? Do they see you praying? You, you want to be students of the Bible and, and have a Christian worldview? Do, do you talk about that? They see you treasuring God's word and hiding it in your mind and Hard. Do, you, do you want them to be people who, who give back? Do, do they see you giving 
back and making generosity a number one priority in your budget? You want them to be people of service? Do they see you caring about the needs of others? I, I'll shut up about that. But I, I, hope you get, I hope you get the point. Our lives are talking so loudly they can't hear a word we're saying. So as we close, let's review. Hannah prayed for her child even before he was born. She prepared him at a very young age. She released him at the appropriate time. She found practical ways to express her love. And then finally, she consistently lived out what she said she believed. A touching story came out of the war zone of Iraq just a few years ago. A suicide bomber had killed over a dozen people. Bombs strapped to him as he got on a a bus. And as officials sifted through the rubble, they heard a baby cry. The baby was alive and well, completely healthy. But above the baby were the charred remains of a mother and a grandmother whose bodies had shielded that precious child from that devastation. When I heard that, I thought, what a graphic picture is that of what mothers would be willing to do, and indeed, what many actually do for their child day after day after day. But you know what? It's also an example of what Jesus did for us, isn't it? The Bible says there's an enemy who wants to kill and steal and destroy, but Jesus came into this world, and at the cross, he flung his body across the exploding shrapnel of our sin so that we could really live. And there is no greater love than that. Father, thank you for this Mother's Day weekend and that we can carve out some moments to just celebrate, to thank, and to show appreciation for these incredible people on whose shoulders we have stood. Thank you for every mom. Lord, I ask that this would be a very, very special time for her. And Father, for those whose hearts are empty and yearning, as was Hannah's, I pray, oh God, that you would bring the comfort, the peace, and the hope that only you can. May this be a lesson for all of us. No leader emerges in a vacuum. We all stand on the shoulders of someone who's paid an enormous price for us to be where we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.